Is it possible to ever really give or to ever really receive a true gift? Maybe that sounds like a ridiculous question. Of course, it's possible to give and receive a gift. We do it all the time. But in fact, this question is actually a live debate among philosophers and anthropologists. Because while it's true that we give and receive gifts all the time, these gifts tend to come with certain expectations. When someone gives a gift, there are usually strings attached. Maybe it's that we're expected to, to give something in response. Or maybe it's just that we're made to feel indebted to them or that we're obligated to respond with some kind of gratitude or friendship or support. At least that's what the anthropologist Marcel Mauss argued 100 years ago in his landmark study of gifts and gift exchanges. People give gifts for all kinds of reasons and in all manner of different contexts, Mao said. But what's clear in all of those exchanges is that gifts always bring with them some kind of expectation of response. Gifts are never really free. But if that's the case, you might ask, if a gift is never really free, is it even right to call it a gift? Well, according to some people, like the French philosopher Jacques Derrida, the answer is no. All of those gifts that Mouse talked about in his book, according to Derrida, none of them were really gifts at all. Because a true gift, or to use Derrida's term, a pure gift, is something that is given with no intention and no expectation of a response. It's a pure one-way gift. For there to be a gift, he says, there must be no reciprocity, return, exchange, counter-gift, or debt. If the other gives me back or owes me or has to return what I give him or her, there will not have been a gift. In fact, Derrida goes so far as to say that if the recipient is even aware that what is being given to her is a gift, then it's no longer a gift. Because just the awareness of it creates a feeling of indebtedness and a sense that she needs to respond in some way. Now, you might be asking yourself, what in the world did these ponderous musings of two French academics have to do with the book of Romans? Well, as it turns out, quite a bit. Because as we've seen over the last 12 sessions, the good news that the Apostle Paul has been sent to preach is fundamentally a message about a gift, the gift of salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as you're now well aware, Paul spends a lot of time explaining how incredibly astonishing this gift is, how we've done nothing whatsoever to earn it, how the only reason that God has given this gift is because of his own personal choice to love us, to be generous to us despite our failure and sin. And because of that, because Paul has spent so long talking about how we are saved purely by grace, how we're, our salvation is purely a gift, how we've done nothing to earn it, it, you might be tempted to think that maybe this salvation is what Derrida meant when he spoke about a pure gift. Maybe that's what Paul's trying to say 
is not only that God has given us the gift of his son freely, but in fact that this is a gift that neither requires nor expects any response from us. At least that's, that's how sometimes Christians seem to talk about the gospel. We say that salvation is by grace and that it's a free gift of God and therefore that there's nothing we need to do in response. All we're supposed to do is take what's being given to us and enjoy it. But that's not what Paul thinks. Indeed, as the New Testament scholar John Barclay has argued in a very lengthy book on this topic, Paul does not think in these one-way terms. He doesn't believe that the gift of Christ is given to us with no expectation of a response. Not because he doesn't think salvation is a true gift, but because he simply disagrees with Derrida. The gift of salvation in Christ is both a free, unearned gift, and at the same time, it's a gift that invites us to give something in response. And it's in this chapter, in Romans chapter 12, that Paul begins to explain just what that response is. First, by discussing how we give ourselves over to God, and then second, how we give ourselves over to one another. Uh, let's start with the first. The first thing to notice in this chapter is, in fact, one of, one of the earliest, very first words, the word therefore. It's vital that we pay attention to that word because without it, we could fatally misunderstand the nature of our relationship with God. When Paul says, therefore, he's drawing attention to the fact that our response, our service to God, is not an attempt to make ourselves right with God, nor are we giving something to him in order to somehow put him in debt or earn his favor or so that he'll give us something in response. Sometimes that's what we're doing when we act kindly or give gifts to other people, but it isn't true with God. Whatever we give to God is nothing more than a grateful response to what he has already given us. Because he gave, therefore we give. But what exactly is it that we're told to give? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Present your bodies as a sacrifice. Now, that sentence no doubt sounds strange to modern ears, but remember Paul was writing to an audience of ancient Christians, likely composed of both Jews and Gentiles, and they would have been intimately familiar with sacrifice. For Jews, the sacrifices that took place in the temple were the height of worship, and for Roman pagans, public sacrifice to the gods, that was a part of daily life. So you see, Paul's original audience they would have had firsthand experience of watching sacrifices, often of dead animals being given over to the gods. But the sacrifice that Paul speaks of here is different. Paul isn't just talking about giving the gift of a dead animal. For Paul, the gift which we owe to God is our own living bodies, our very selves. 
To quote the church father Gregory of Nyssa, this is not a gift of what is external to you, but a gift which is truly yours because it consists of what is internal to you, which is the man inside you, helping you to be perfect and blameless according to the word of the Lamb. This sacrifice, this offering up of ourselves to God for the purpose of service and holiness of life, this is how we respond to God's gift to us. This, Paul says, is our spiritual act of worship. And you can see this principle reflected in Christian worship. As you might know, the, the word that is often used for Holy Communion, the word Eucharist, it's a Greek word that means thanksgiving. And the reason we call the Lord's Supper a Eucharist, a thanksgiving, is because our worship is an act of thanks, where we receive the gift of Christ from God and we give ourselves back to him in return. In fact, in the original 17th century Book of Common Prayer, the prayer that is prayed after receiving communion, it borrows very explicitly from Paul's language in these verses. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and lively sacrifice unto thee, humbly beseeching thee that all we who are partakers of this holy communion may be fulfilled with thy grace and heavenly benediction. So that's our first response to the gift of Christ. In exchange for this free gift of God's mercy and grace to us in Jesus Christ, Paul says that we should joyfully and thankfully offer ourselves back to God the giver. But the gift giving doesn't end there. The Christian response to grace isn't just directed toward God. It's also directed toward one another. Notice what Paul says in the next section, verses 3 through 8. First, in verses 3 to 5, he tells us that we need to change the way that we think about ourselves in response to the grace of God. In the world of ancient Rome, just as in our world today, a person's worth and status was often determined by their wealth their ethnicity, their professional success, any number of other factors. But Paul says we need to think of ourselves with, as he puts it, sober judgment, which means we need to think about ourselves not according to such outdated worldly definitions of worth, but according to the fact that we are recipients of God's free outlandish grace. And we need to recognize that in receiving the gift of Christ, we have been bound to one another in one body, as Paul puts it, and therefore we're dependent on each other. And because of that, he goes on to say in verse 6, we have an obligation to generously share the gifts that we have been given by God with one another. We have gifts, he says, that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy, ministry, the teacher, the exhorter, the giver, the leader, the compassionate. Now, Paul's point here isn't to, to give an exhaustive list of spiritual giftings or some treatise on personal vocation. Instead, he, he's just reflecting on the fact that God has given not only salvation, but distinct talents and abilities and resources to each and every Christian. And he wants us to recognize that just like the gift of salvation in Christ 
These talents and these resources, they're not something that we deserve or that we've earned. They're the gifts of God. And they've been generously given to us so that we might generously share them with one another in return. Of course, Romans chapter 12, it doesn't end there. In the last half of the chapter, Paul goes on to give a number of moral instructions about how Christians ought to treat one another. Love one another with mutual affection, he says. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Don't repay evil for evil. Leave vengeance to God. And when you and I read this list of exhortations today, they might sound overly optimistic, like a sort of lofty moral ideals. But because we've grown so accustomed to Christian moral teaching, we're not terribly surprised by them. I doubt there's anything in Paul's list of moral teachings that you would read and think, well, no, I don't think that's how a Christian ought to behave. To the contrary, I imagine that for most of us, the behaviors that Paul describes seem obviously good and morally commendable. But you got to remember that in the world of ancient Rome, in the world in which Paul first composed this letter, these instructions were anything but obvious. Because remember, Paul's writing to a community, a community of people comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, both wealthy and poor, both free citizens and most likely slaves. And he's telling them that they ought to love one another, care for one another, share one another's joys and sorrows, provide for one another's needs. He's actually suggesting that Jews ought to do this for Gentiles, that wealthy Roman aristocrats ought to do it for common laborers and even slaves. In fact, he goes so far as to tell the wealthy and successful members of the church in verse 16 that they shouldn't be haughty, they shouldn't think of themselves highly, but instead that they should associate with the lowly. Again, it's hard to overstate just how radical of a claim this was in the ancient world. No self-respecting Roman nobleman would ever voluntarily associate with his inferiors. Certainly not in such a way that would imply that they're somehow equals. And yet, that's what Paul is saying. Well, why? Why introduce this new countercultural ethical teaching in Romans? What does it have to do with the last 11 chapters, with the gospel of God's righteousness? Well, if you think about it, it all comes back to the gift. Now, throughout this whole book, Paul has been explaining that the righteousness of God consists not in God giving us what we deserve, but rather in God freely, graciously, generously giving what it is that we so desperately need but cannot possibly provide for ourselves. In the death and resurrection of His beloved Son, God has given the gift of freedom to those in bondage the gift of forgiveness to the guilty, the gift of life to the dead. And in giving that gift, God hasn't just provided a way for sinners to be saved. He has entirely transformed the reality in which we live. And because of that, as Paul says in Romans 12 verse 2, our minds must be transformed. No longer can we think in the ways that we used to think. 
No longer can we evaluate ourselves or one another according to the old systems of worth. Now, we must recognize that every aspect of our lives is defined by the gifts of God. And now we must respond accordingly, offering our lives to God in gratitude and offering our talents and our time and our resources to one another in imitation of the same generosity that God has shown to us. That, according to Paul, is how we receive the gift of Jesus Christ.